0: Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me James Kelly. James has one of the most interesting journeys that I have seen in researching my podcast guests. So James, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me
0: today. Tom, It's a pleasure to be here and I'm just honored and humbled. So thank you for having me.
1: James, we don't get too many PhDs on the podcast. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your academic background, where you secured that degree and then go to your professional background.
0: So I got my PhD at the University of Western Australia in Perth back, uh, graduated in 2010 in consumer psychology. So, it's a very niche field in some ways. And so, I spent the last 12 years in academia. And I went from Australia to seven years in Philadelphia to just finished up my academic career with spending four years just outside Dubai. And so, I moved from Dubai to Bend, Oregon. And that's where QChange started in 2019. So, that was my transition out of academia to my startup, QChange.
1: I was really intrigued by your. PhD in consumer psychology, because one of the things I try to do in my compliance world is teach compliance practitioners and CCOs, or at least expose them to what they can do to communicate. Mm. How can they communicate compliance concepts? Not so much a one-to-one communication, but how do you communicate to your customer base who, for an in-house compliance practitioner, are your employees? I'm really intrigued to visit with you about that. How did you settle on that for an ap- academic discipline?
0: So like many things in my life, you know, we were talking before luck versus hard preparation or whatever it was, preparation times. What did you say earlier? Like when you
1: have preparation meets opportunity, luck occurs.
0: There we go. So that's kind of what happened to me. So I started off my PhD actually in sports leadership. So looking at why coaches play high paid players versus low paid players when the stats are better for the low paid, right? So I was really curious about leadership choices in that capacity. But my advisor left, and in that moment, one of my good friends was getting his PhD in also consumer psychology, and he said, hey, listen, these two advisors are world-renowned experts in culture and humans, and why people buy. Have you thought about that? I was like, no, that's really interesting, because it's still a psychology of leadership side, but around the consumer. And so in undergrad, I wasn't the best student, but marketing was one of the classes that I really kind of thrived in. So I thought, ah, this will be really fun, because I'm curious let's go down that path. And so that was really at the start was just curiosity of why do people do what they do? You know, um, most people study something that they don't know about or that they're curious about themselves. So if you think about psychologists, they usually go study, you know, someone comes from a broken family, they end up being a family therapist because they really want to understand what happened, right? So for me, uh, as a child, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. And so I never understood why we did or did not buy things and what that was really about, not just the financial side of it, but then what, We bought, the why of why we bought that was really curious to me from a decision-making perspective. So what did you write your dissertation on? So my dissertation was a five-country study looking at why consumers, consumers' attitudes really towards global brands. So we did research across the US, Australia, Germany, UK, China, and South Korea, looking at different global brands and really the different attributes. So if someone was really what we call consumer ethnocentrism, which is really like, I want to buy America only because America is the best no matter what. Or if I want to buy South Korea only. So then you have a negative attitude towards the other brand from another country. So looking at aspects like consumer ethnocentrism, this notion of cosmopolitanism, social normative influence. So I buy things because my friends buy them. So I will buy them as well. So I have a positive attitude towards that particular brand or product. So looking at these consumer attributes and then looking at How does that impact your perceived value of the brand? And then what overall, what is your attitude towards that brand?
1: So it sounds like you were looking at culture in these countries, consumer culture, and then trying to pair that with what a multinational corporation either might have to offer or might want to offer. Would that be fair?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, a great example is like we looked at an individual brand of Samsung as an example. So, you know, obviously in South Korea, consumers... Perceive that brand be really positive, right? And it's a good quality brand. So we looked at this notion of perceived quality, which is around perceived social value, perceived emotional value, perceived value for money and perceived quality, which equals perceived overall value of a product. And so what was really interesting is you take that concept of Samsung, and you ask consumers in China, and they saw perceived quality and perceived value for money, but they didn't see perceived social value or perceived emotional value. And if you look at the historical context of Korea and China, it makes a lot of sense. So how do you as a brand create a narrative that changes the Chinese consumer to want to buy your product?
1: So that brand could be a product, that brand could be a service, that brand could be a message, it could be a variety of things.
0: It could be anything. You know, I think, you know, one of the things is you started off the podcast is from compliance. How do you communicate to those inside the organization? Right. And so when you think about organization, it's really a group of multiple different segments inside that population. And often, what happens in any arm of a business is they do a a unified single messaging that's supposed to resonate across the board. But I've always argued that if you can diversify your population inside the organization and tailor that messaging, the likelihood of compliance will increase drastically because you're speaking the language of that individual. And I think that's been a transition I've talked to about with many companies about how can you actually segment your population and then create targeted communications to them. We do it in marketing all the time. One to one marketing is really popular. Go online, see the banners. They're always, I shop for shoes. Now I got 25 shoe banners coming up on the side of my screen. You can do that in a way inside an organization and have a much greater impact around compliance.
1: Well, you'll be happy to know that the regulators in form of the Department of Justice have finally caught up to your insights, and they are now mandating that for their minimum best standards for compliance programs as well. Well, good. (laughs) So you wrote a book or published a book, I think, last year called The Crucible's Gift, and I was wondering if you could tell us why you wrote this book and what do you hope to communicate to your audience with that book?
0: The book was a labor of love. And it was one of these things where in 2006, I wrote down a bunch of goals. And one of the goals was by 44, I want to write a book. Now I wrote that goal down and I wrote how I would do that. So I wrote like, I wrote a book in 2000, whatever. And then I wrote how I would did it. So I did it all in the past tense as if I accomplished it, right? So I wrote it in 2006 when I moved to Australia to have goals. I folded that book away and I actually only looked at it one other time. But lo and behold, in 2018, I started writing that book. And the premise of that book came from my former podcast called Executive After Hours. Really, the tagline of it is, I care about who you are, not what you do, because who you are defines what you do. And so I interviewed over 150 executives from Fortune 2 companies to entrepreneurs, and I interviewed them about their personal journey, not their professional journey. So I interviewed interview about their childhood, all the way to adulthood. And man, just the learnings in that was phenomenal. So I kind of took that I spent six weeks on a beach in Peniche, Portugal, on a family vacation, writing every day, and my my kids at the beach playing every day. And six weeks, I wrote a 190-page book as a first draft, and delivered it. And so the premise of it really is around: we all have a journey that we're on. And what I found with these leaders is that they all had some sort of crucible moment. And when I say leaders, authentic leaders. That's kind of my stick. Is that I feel like I'm pretty authentic. Like you get what you get, what you get with me. And so. What I was really curious about is how are authentic leaders perceived differently and how do they act differently inside their organizations. And what I found is that a a majority of those I interviewed that I perceived as being really authentic took some sort of adversity moment and created that as an opportunity. You know, they kind of moved from it happened to me to it happened for me. And when they made that transition in preposition, it allowed them to actually grow. There were some other caveats to it. So, like for example, if the individual didn't have a growth mindset then they were basically a victim in their life. But if they had a growth mindset, then they were developing their self-awareness, which means traditionally what happened is that they also developed their compassion, integrity, and their ability and desire to relate to others around them. And so when those were kind of all combined together, I kind of argued that was my authentic model that I came up with, my authentic leadership model.
1: So let me describe to you what happened to me and see if that fits that model. Because one of the things that I've learned, unfortunately, very late in life was that You have to be able to recognize an open door and then have the courage to walk through.
0: Mm.
1: What happened to me was after I got laid off from my last corporate position and I learned a lot about compliance in that role, I decided what I really wanted to do with my life was race bicycles. I went on this great adventure of racing bicycles until one day on a training ride, I got taken out by a Hummer. So that ended my cycling career. And after a few months of convalescence, I had enough energy to get on my walker and toddle into my office recognizing I was going to have to go back to work. This was 2010. And at that point, I knew nothing about social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, nothing. And I decided to start exploring that. The only time I left my house was to go to physical therapy. So I couldn't meet anyone, couldn't go to a conference, couldn't go have a drink, couldn't go to dinner. And I developed a worldwide compliance practice literally out of my house because I had to. Mm-hmm. And I remember after six months, I got a call from a guy in London. He said, tell me about all your clients in Houston. And I thought about it a minute and I said, I don't have any clients in Houston. They're all international. So learning to see the door and then, like I said, have the courage to walk through it
0: was the biggest lesson mm-hmm. for me. Is that a crucible moment or is that something different? No, 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 I think that's 100%. And, and to be clear, I can't define your crucible moment. You have to define that for yourself, right? You've got to find that moment and ask yourself, and it sounds like you did, well, what the hell did that happen for? I had all these aspirations. What was that invisible hand pushing me in a different direction? And what it sounds like you went from is getting hit by that Hummer happened to me to, hey, you know what? Here's an opportunity to make my life different than what I anticipated, but boy, I might be richer, better off emotionally, socially, spiritually, financially, whatever it is. And so, Absolutely. I mean, I I had a ton of stories around. There was a gentleman who was at 40 who was the COO of McCann Erickson Group, which is just, for the audience, a massive, massive advertising agency, like a billion-dollar agency. And at 40, at 40, like that is an overachiever. But what happened is that he started to lose his health. His back was always hurt. He was having asthma. His marriage was on the rocks. They were just having new kids. Like his his two sisters died in one year and all of the house of cards that he had built started to crumble because his foundation had been really never set correctly when he was a child. And so for him, it took him 40 years to realize his crucible was his childhood, you know, in an abusive house, drugs, drinking, his sisters dying. And he pivoted, left that job took a year off kind of to recenter himself, found mindfulness and created a whole new business that's really taken off because of that crucible that happened. Some people it happened overnight. You know, another guy interviewed who was the chief strategy officer for Google X. That's kind of like their whole, we're going to try anything in the world and see what happens. And his son died overnight at 20 and it totally changed his world. Left that, wrote a book, has a totally different mission in life. But it took those moments for them to realize that all the stuff they've acquired, all the things they've done, didn't really matter because there was still a hole in them that wasn't being filled. Or in your instance, it was a force change. There was a, there was a level of different crucibles that I wrote in the book. Yours was really a forcing function, but you, you took an opportunity versus a pity party, which I'm sure there was a pity party for a bit, and then the opportunity came. So let me turn to
1: change and your your company, your current company, I should say, but What led you to found that and what makes your approach with this product and service so different?
0: Yeah. So I appreciate that question. You know, again, you're talking to someone who who went down the academic route, but I'm not the academic in nature. So, you know, if you were to kind of unpack my background, I got out of high school with a 2.5. I graduated college with a 2.4. You know, my dad died halfway through college. So that kind of obviously rocked my foundation. And, you know, when you look at my history, I am... I wouldn't say the last person to get a PhD, but boy, I wouldn't be on your top five list of most likelies, let's put it that way. And so I went down the academic route, but I was always super entrepreneurial, always trying to start things on the side, doing side hustles. But what came to is that in 2018, when I wrote the book, that was my pivot point. That was my positive crucible, if you will. That was my thing to say, hey, listen, I want something more. and I think there's an opportunity in what we do. And so what Q Change does and where it came from, what it was born out of, was this notion of that, there's, that I believe that technology, the use of AI can be a collaborator in a leader's journey, not a competitor. So our whole entire company is predicated on the idea of prompting, measuring, growing, and predicting leader team success in Microsoft Teams today, all around a meeting. So we're very meeting focused. You know, We believe that this is where leaders show up most, is in a meeting. We believe that a leader spent over 50% of their day in meetings. We believe that leaders are evaluated by their peers and their direct reports in meetings. So, our whole technology and our whole ethos is how can we make and create mindful meetings by increasing the impact of a leader inside those meetings? So,
1: I always found that meetings were the bane of corporate existence. Oh, totally.
0: But I they're know. not going anywhere.
1: That's the thing. Can you make them better? Right. But it's not just the meeting itself. It's the scheduling. So particularly in working from home, if you have a 9 to 10, 10, 11 to 12 open, somebody slots you in at 11. No time to take a break, no bio breaks, no cup of coffee, no water. And people just stack you up in meetings. And then you get to the meeting and whoever's organized it is completely unprepared. No agenda. Uh, They may have some topics they want to think about. And if you're lucky, they've sent them to you in an email. but Ninety-eight percent of participants haven't read that email, and they're going to read it when they get to the meeting. And I find that incredibly frustrating. And then nothing ever happens after the meeting unless one person takes upon themselves to take an action item and actually accomplish something. (laughs) How can you move past this infrastructure that is the bane of our existence? Yet we can't seem to live without.
0: So I think the issue that you are discussing is the ultimate goal that we're trying to solve, or the ultimate. Opportunity. And that's how can we make meetings relevant, necessary, and optimized? But we believe it all starts with how the leader shows up. So we're very, very focused on the soft skill aspect. We'll move to productivity later, but we think that if the leader shows up better for themselves, for example, I want you to imagine, you can think of a thousand scenarios where this happened. I can tell already my two of my co-founders, one was 20 years at Intel. And the other one has been 20 years at all Fortune 200 companies. And so meeting cultures are very prevalent. And your example, as I was laughing, is like their exact world of existence. What we've come up with is I want you to imagine what's something in your, your history that you always want to be better at from a soft skill perspective before you went into a meeting. Pick anything. Empathy. Perfect. Great example. So one of our areas that you can work on is compassion or empathy. So- our solution looks at your calendar and says, by looking at the first, first level of defense, is what's, this, what's in the subject line, right? So, is this a coaching meeting? Empathy might be pretty important, right? So, one on one, one on two, team meeting, whatever it is. So, immediately before that meeting, we will send you a nudge and it'll say, hey, Tom, in this meeting, look for opportunities to share in the experience of your team members and make them feel valued based on that experience, right? After the meeting, it will say, hey, Tom, how compassionate do you feel like you were in this meeting on a scale of one to five? Now, you might give yourself a four. But here's where the magic of our solution happens. And what we really are doing is driving self-awareness is we'll say, hey, those in Tom's meeting that Tom invited to help him be better at being more compassionate. How compassionate was Tom in this meeting? Now, as a group, they may on aggregate give you a 2.4. And that's being delivered to you in real time today in Microsoft Teams. You may be like, dang it. I thought I showed up better and I thought I was compassionate. I'm working really hard on this. I want to ask for written feedback. This is a choice point. So you simply hit a button that says, hey, Tom's looking to grow. Can you provide some written feedback? And this written feedback is broken down to be very specific. Now, you've been in a thousand feedback situations. Hey, how did I do in this meeting? Oh, you did great. Oh, you did fine. Oh, it was perfect. That is not helpful. That does not move your self-awareness ball forward down the field. So what we say is like, all right, tell me the situation in this meeting where you did or did not witness this. Tell me the actions that Tom did or did not do that demonstrated compassion. And most importantly, tell me the impact it had on you in that meeting when Tom was or was not compassionate. Again, all delivered in aggregate, anonymous, back to you in real time when that data is collected. And this culminates in your own personal leadership score that we've written based on algorithms that takes out outliers and all that jazz kind of gives you a true score. And so you're getting this in real time. So imagine that you're getting that feedback from your team and they say, hey, you're not really being that compassionate. That's your opportunity to either seek help or try it differently. And we give you little tidbits on how to do it differently as well, or things to think about. And so with that notion in mind, we're helping you in these soft skills in real time. We're taking it out of the classroom, which is really important, but you only retain about 10 or 15% of that. And we bring it into experience where you retain about 75% of that. That's really important. That's really impactful. And that's really different than what's on the market because it's an end-to-end of a single behavior measured both quantitatively and qualitatively in real time for you and for the team.
1: So I spoke about or asked you a series of questions which you categorize as productivity. But let me overlay a productivity question now because- And I'll use myself as an example. If I commit to something, if I don't do it, then it ain't going to get done because then it just goes on the list. And I've got to dig it out when I have time to look at that list of things to do. And when you're backed up in meetings, literally all day long, every day, one, how do you get that kind of information and feedback within your system or within the tool, rather, of mindful meetings that allows that type of uh, evolution and growth?
0: So there are, two, there are two little functions that we have. The first function is that for the quantitative feedback, we give users four hours to respond to that. So, you know, if you've, if you've not used Microsoft Teams or Slack, or if you have, there's always those little tiny chat channels, right? So chats. That's what we have. It's a chat bot in that channel. So it's there no matter what. It's not going anywhere. And that's where your notifications show up. And so what happens is that right after the meeting, we'll send you a notification that will say, hey, Tom, give yourself a rating, right, of one to five. Four hours later, if you haven't done it, hey, Tom, just a reminder that, that feedback window closing, right? So we get two different touch points. Once you get the quantitative feedback and you ask for written feedback, then it starts again another three hours later. So you have, sends it out immediately, but there's three hours for that gap to close, which typically is the end of the day. So these are things that we're trying to figure out is how we can nudge people to do it. What we can tell you is that it's part of the culture of an organization which makes this actually work. So if the organization isn't, isn't really embracing the feedback mentality, then it becomes really difficult. Now, when we talk about productivity side, that's a whole different conversation. That part of that is leader-specific. Some leaders are really great about saying, hey, I want no meetings between 11 and 1 every day so I can get stuff done. Some leaders are like, I need to be in meetings back-to-back because I'm so important that I must be in every single meeting, though no decision's ever being made, but my face needs to be seen. That's more of a, a CYA environment. I need to cover my butt, right? So that's culturally specific. And so what we're trying to argue is that over time, as we evolve this product, we can say, hey, Tom, you need to be in these three meetings today. I would decline these two meetings today. They aren't relevant for you. So that we try to start educating you around where you need to use your resources better. That's the productivity side. And there there are tools out there that will look at the agenda, that will say, okay, here's what's happening. Here are the due items. Here's what's next. And they send them out to kind of do what you say, like, if I don't get those action items, I'm not going to do it. So we got to reverse engineer it. We want to say, yeah, productivity is important, but how you show up is what drives inclusion inside the organization that actually drives culture change. And then once we understand why feedback is really important, we can start working on the productivity side of it. We can adopt different tools that already exist in the market and really strengthen our position. It strikes me that this tool
1: and this solution, and we haven't even talked about the services you provide or QChange provides, is uniquely situated to help in the work-from-home environment during the coronavirus health crisis over the past 11 months. Has it changed not so much your business model, but your approach and how you're able to market this particular
0: tool? I mean, I think like any behavioral-focused, meeting-focused, leadership-focused company, If you didn't pivot to talk about COVID, then I'm not sure what world you're living in or what planet you're on. But because our tool works, regardless of if you're online or in person, we didn't really change the go-to-market or conversation about the use of the tool, just the use case of the tool, if that makes sense. Because that was how we built it, was flexibility from home or from work, because we knew that's where the market was going already. It just got accelerated overnight. So we already are there. So for us, that worked out really well.
1: Let me ask you to go into the veil down to the future. Mm. Do you see the specific question of meetings
0: mm-hmm. really going
1: in 2025 or, or perhaps even beyond. How are you yeah. trying to utilize AI as a collaboration tool to help improve both the delivery of content in meetings and perhaps productivity as well?
0: Yeah, so love the question. And we, we've got a couple of patents on the future of meetings that we've filed already, so provisional patents. Where we think things are going is that this ecosystem, you and I talking in this virtual environment will be to some capacity of every organization as they go to a hybrid model. So hybrid model for me is what's going to be, some will come in the office some days, some are going to work from home some days. That's going to shrink work environments, right? Meaning office space, that's going to create more flexible desk offerings. And that's also going to say, hey, we're going to have collaboration days in the office or strategy days. Everyone needs to come in on those days. So we'll have an ecosystem or workspace that allows for that flex of people coming in. But here's where we think technology is really going to take off and where we think AI is going to really be impactful. I want you to imagine that you're in a meeting with five or six people and you are trying to work on compassion or succinct and direct. What we are predicting and developing is the ability to have subtle nudges come up on the screen that says, hey, Tom, you need to ask more questions. Hey, Tom, Susie's been quiet the whole time. Ask her a question. Bring her voice in the room. And then moving from that, that's in real time trying to drive more inclusion inside meetings. We think if you solve for inclusion in meetings and tolerance, that actually solves a ton of problems inside organizations. But moving beyond that, taking that video that's done, that 30-minute meeting, and then basically putting it in the cloud, having AI evaluate what's happening and provide insights in real time within 20 minutes of, hey, here's the agenda. Here are the action items. Oh, and by the way, Tom, every time you said this phrase, Susie grimaced. Here's what we think is happening. Here's what you could do next time different. Here's a question you can ask so really helping the leader dissect and tear apart what's happening in real time when you're on a screen like this with seven people you can't see all the faces it's impossible so you don't know how your impact is being weighted on them and so what we think that we can take this video and create what we call video meeting assistant so that afterwards you can kind of say okay here are the big lessons that I've learned in that meeting now to your point is when you're in a back to 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 back meeting where do you find space for that? And so that's why we have to focus on what's most important in those meetings and the, bit and the areas for opportunities, not the whole meeting in itself. So if you're working on compassion, here are all the compassion moments. Maybe there's five. If you're working on um, big picture thinking, here are all the opportunities you could have used big picture thinking, conversation, or language to accomplish those things. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time sure. for this episode, yeah. but I was wondering
1: if listeners wanted more information on yourself, on QChange, where could they go?
0: Yeah, sure. So a couple of different things. Go to QChange. It's just literally the letter QChange.com. You can get all the information there. If you want access to my digital or audio book for free, we have a tab on the website where you can actually just give us your email. You get your own free copy of the digital version or the audio version of my book, The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders. If you want to support my kid's college fund, go to Amazon. You can find it there as well. <laughs> and for me, just again, I'm not huge in social media because I don't have the persistence or patience to do it. But our LinkedIn page is really active on LinkedIn and we're growing our, our Facebook page as well for QChange.
1: So we didn't really get to the services QChange provides, but a lot of information on the website, James, this has been a fabulous visit. And as uh, we move forward through 2021, I hope I could uh, perhaps ask you to come back and
0: uh, share some more thoughts with us. I would welcome the opportunity, Tom. So thank you for thinking of that. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.